The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good morning. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, California, streaming online at KUCI.org and podcasting on iTunes. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd, the show's engineer. We've enjoyed bringing this show since 2005. Your host is Mari Frank, a local attorney since 1985. She's a certified information privacy professional. Mari's testified many times on privacy issues in Congress and the California legislature. You may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, The O'Reilly Factor, and many more shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacypiracy. Mari, what's our show about this morning? Well, today our show is about how companies sell our bodies, uh, our data about our bodies, which is pretty disgusting, and also a true privacy invasion. And we are welcoming back a guest that we've had on our show before. Right now he's teaching in Fairbanks, Alaska. So this is kind of exciting. We've spoken to him from Boston, and who knows where he'll be next. But let me tell you a little bit about Adam Tanner, who is one of the leading experts on privacy and the commercialization of personal information. He's the author of a book that we talked about before, What Stays in Vegas, and now his brand new book, which just came out in January, called Our Bodies, Our Data, How Companies Make Billions Selling Our Medical Records. He is um, a writer-in-residence at Harvard University's Institute for Quantitative Social Science and the 2016-17 C.W. Sneedon Chair at Journalism at the University of Alaska in Fairbanks. You can find out more about him at Adam Tanner, that's spelled T-A-N-N-E-R, dot news. And we're just so thrilled to have you back with us, Adam. Glad to join you again. Well, great. So tell me, how is it that you decided to write this book? So my first book, What Stays in Vegas, talks about the commercial collection of our personal information, the companies that are collecting information. Now, in past years, there's been a lot of information about government collection of data. Edward Snowden's revelation showed that it's very possible. In my research, I found, however, that companies are much more interested in gathering ongoing portfolios about hundreds of millions of people because it's financially in their interest to do so. When I was researching that first book, I thought it might be good to write a chapter on the business of medical data, what kind of medical information is collected about us. But the topic was so complicated and the trade was so hidden, so opaque, that I decided to write a second book, and that's the result of what you have before you now, this new book, Our Bodies, Our Data. Fascinating. And I should read one of the um, one of the testimonials from Financial Times. It says, an engrossing story-packed takedown of the data industry. 
offers a narrative that transforms big data from spreadsheet dull to a racy read people will pay attention to. And it's it's really pretty frightening to think about people knowing about all of our medical data. So let's let's talk a little bit about this. What kind of medical data is really being traded about us commercially? So there are two kinds of data that are traded about about us commercially. The first is information that you might be sharing uh, on the Internet, information about things that you buy in stores. That information uh, would be shared about you with your name and address, email, things of that nature. The information that's most sensitive that may surprise people that's for sale, however, is information from inside the doctor's office, information from the pharmacy, information from our insurance claims. This information <clears throat> is sold with our names removed, but it is gathered uh, over time in a dossier about you. Your medical conditions is put together and becomes a commercial product. Um, so this is something that people typically don't know about, and it would have years of your medically-related issues, and it also has your doctor's name in the file. So when we talk about anonymization, how anonymous is it really? Well, the the problem is that when you remove someone's name but leave other information in there, it may be identifiable over time. So the name that's the information that's left in there includes your date of birth, your gender, and what part of town you live in, as well as your doctor's name. Now, if you're someone who, who goes frequently to a holiday in a certain place or you have certain patterns that bring you to different places, those are more clues as to who you are when you're talking about an anonymized file of years of information. So if you take me right now, as you mentioned, I'm now in Fairbanks, Alaska. If I had medical work done here and you also had my anonymized files from the previous two cities I lived in, you might be able to find me because my previous cities were Cambridge, Massachusetts, and before that, Belgrade, Serbia, where I was working as a foreign correspondent. So likely, I'm the only man of my age, of my birthday, who would be in those three cities at that time, so you could then identify my file. Yes. I remember reading in the New York Times a few years ago about how anonymization was a joke, that just because of what you're talking about, the more information that you have about that person, the more likely you can put together who that person is. And I think the New York Times actually did a bunch of um, de-anonymization, anonymization of several people and contacted them and was able to show them that even though that they thought they're information was anonymized, it really was enough to put it together. So I think that's the scary part, right? Well, so what you're talking about was an article uh, from about a decade ago. Uh, AOL at that time released uh, data about people who had used their search engine to find things on the internet. And they put all of the people's search information together, but without their name. So it would say um, user 1257, and here's all of that user's searches. They released that information because they thought it would be interesting for social scientists, professors, and other people to have a look at it. But the New York Times reporters went in and w were able to identify some of the people and call them up. Right. There's been other similar kinds of re-identifications. Netflix, about a decade ago, had a big contest. They wanted to come up with a better recommendation engine for their movies, 
and they release the data on all of their subscribers and what movies they watched. Right. The, the subscriber names were removed, but it said, uh, again, 1257 uh, customer number. And outsiders were able to match that database with another movie database on the Internet, the IMDB database, that sometimes had people's names, so they were able to identify some of the people. If you think of re-identification, it's something like a puzzle where you get different pieces of information, you see what fits together, and then voila, you have your solution, you have your re-identification. Yeah. You know, some people may be listening. Now, we're on the campus of the University of California, Irvine, but also we have business people driving by and people listening in on the Internet as well. But some people may say, oh, privacy, who cares? I mean, who cares about my information? What do they care? Why? What's the big deal? And why should I worry even if it does get de-anonymized? What do you say to that? So medical data is our most intimate information, and it could be used in ways that you do not expect or in ways that could lead to discrimination or embarrassment. Now, even if you're in great health and you go to the doctor once a year and never have any problems, probably you know someone who may be vulnerable, a friend from from school, a a former colleague or a, a, a relative that suffers from mental health issues, suffers from any kind of disease or any other problem, who wouldn't want that information in circulation. Now, in some cases, outsiders could use this information legally against you. So life insurance companies could deny policies based on this kind of information, and that is legal. However, it could also be used illegally but hard to prove. So an employer could see that certain kinds of employees are very expensive because they have to pay their health insurance. They may decide not to promote them or perhaps not to hire them at all in the first place. That would not be legal, but it would be hard to prove. And and so this kind of information can be used in ver- various ways that you do not expect and you do not want. And that's why I'm... Uh, that's why I'm raising these concerns or talking about this issue. Yeah, it seems really, when you're talking about it, would be some things that would be hard to prove. Let's say my life insurance company also owns or has a partner with a mortgage company, and they decide that if they know certain things about me, that they don't want to get me a mortgage, so I can't get a house, or maybe I can't even get an apartment. So I just want people to understand that this really could be far-reaching because so many companies companies have conglomerates or their partners or they sell other information to each other. And so that's really what the worry is, is that if you have something, you know, there could be a problem. You know, Adam, uh, my son just asked me the other day, Mom, um, will you please give some of your DNA to um, Ancestry.com so we can find out all of our, our back, you know, our history of our family? And I said, I don't want to do that. You know, I don't feel comfortable doing that. I don't know who's going to have access to it. Oh, they're going to keep it private. (laughs) And I said, "Um, are you going to do it? And he goes, well, I was waiting Uh, for you to do it. (laughs) And I said, you know what? If you want to do it, that's your choice. I'm going to tell you the reasons why I don't want to do it and if you want to do it. But I really don't want to do that right now. So what do you say to that, Adam? Well, uh, two things. Firstly, if your son does it, he's revealing a lot about you as well. Exactly. You're in the direct, direct chain of DNA information. But right. So DNA is something that has great promise for medicine. There may be insights that come from it. It's quite interesting um, 
for, for families and, and people doing research on their family trees. Part of the issue you want to look at, though, before you share your DNA is what is the policy of the company that's doing the test on your behalf? Some companies that conduct DNA tests automatically share the data in anonymized form, although DNA is sort of like looking at your face. It's, it's identifying in and of itself because it's unique to you. Right. Other companies encourage you to share it. So, for example, 23andMe encourages people taking tests on their site to share the data, and other companies do not share the data. So if it's an issue that you're concerned about, I think you do need to read the fine print of the privacy policy of that company and see what it does. Of course, the kind of test that you're talking about might be very interesting in suggesting what part of the world you come from, whether you have uh, a mix of different um, ethnicities in your background. It, it can be very interesting, but I think if you care about these privacy issues, you should really do the homework and check out the company that's doing the, the testing. Right, and, and he said to me, well, it's anonymized. You'll love this. He goes, so I'm really going to have my friend put it on his credit card. <laughs> <laughs> and instead of my credit card, and you can do the same thing, have it have a friend do it on the credit card so they can't come back and identify you. So I, I said, wait a minute, my, my DNA identifies me. <laughs> so, um, exactly. If you I mean, think would about you it, do it, Adam? Like, would you do it? I haven't done it yet. Um, it's sort of like putting your face without a name onto the Internet. It's still you whether or not you put a fake name underneath it, and people over time may well identify that it's you. And that's the same with DNA. So part of the issue is what are you using the DNA for? So if it's just for curiosity for family tree background, that's one thing. If it's like a medical necessity, that's another. Right. There is a interesting government um, research effort underway that President Obama started last year, and he's calling for a million people to donate their DNA to science to help researchers detect patterns of disease and, and other aspects that could advance medicine. Now, I think these kinds of efforts where you have a choice and can think about it and know who's using the information and to what end, um, those are noble efforts. And if people want to contribute, that's great. A lot of what I'm talking about, the, the trade of, of medical data that's worth billions of dollars, is not really about advancing medicine and science. It's about selling drugs and medications. And that's where I think we should have more of a say on, on what happens to our information. So I don't think people should just use our information to advance sales and business without us having any say on it. However, mm -hmm. if you want to do donate your DNA to science, that's, that's great. Just think about it and know who you're giving it to. And and also look at their privacy policy. We've seen so many, literally millions of security breaches so that somebody could come in and get that and hold it hostage and who knows what they could do. I guess I guess I've been talking to too many brilliant people like you that, and and reading too much that um, that I am not really trusting when someone says they're going to do something that it doesn't get into somebody else's hands or they go bankrupt and somebody else buys that data and uses it for another purpose. So, you know, I I'm a little bit more skeptical than maybe other people would be. But um, but let's get back to this other issue because it's, I think it is really critical. What about lab data such as blood and urine tests? Now, is that something that companies can buy too? Now, this is surprising to many people because things such as testing data about you seems especially intimate. That's 
blood from inside of you, your urine, it may be a, a skin test, uh, some kind of biopsy. Those things are also sold, mm. and um, they are sold by well-known companies such as Quest or LabCorp, some of those big companies that likely your doctor sends you to to have a test. Right. Now, again, they're anonymized. Your name's not there. Your, doctor, your doctor's name is there. Your age, birth date, other identifying, potentially identifying details are there. And it's interesting to think about how that information might be used because it's sold to drug companies. So imagine you go in and you have a test on a Thursday. Now, you schedule a, a Tuesday visit with your doctor to, to see what the results are. Right. Now, on, on the next day, the drug company receives a copy of that, and they find out that Dr. Jones has a patient who's tested positive for some disease. They send a salesperson to see Dr. Jones on Monday, and they say, let us tell you about this new great drug that can treat patients like your patient. Now, they don't know your name, uh, but they do know that Dr. Jones has a patient, and they may be prescribing some expensive drugs the Tuesday to treat that condition. So you come in on Tuesday, you don't know that your doctor has already been visited by a salesperson who's pitched their product. Now, it is possible that the salesperson for the big drug company was telling them about some great new product and giving them some valuable information, but it's also possible that there are better products or cheaper generic drugs that would be just as good in treating your condition, and you might be prescribed uh, a more expensive product if that salesperson was effective. So this is concretely how information such as blood test data could be used. And, and it's a double-edged sword. If, if it was new, great information, maybe it would help you. But if it was just a sales pitch, it might not help you and it might cost you more. Wow. So um, so when you're, like, I go to Quest when I get blood tests. So, I mean, so when I go in there, can I say I don't want this information sold, or do I have that choice? Well, this is the interesting thing. If you say to the nurse who's administering that test, um, what do you do with my data? Is it sold subsequently? Typically, the frontline people don't know about the secondary sale, the sale oh. of the information that has nothing to do with you. And the other issue involved here is that the U.S. rules define data about you as, they define by these rules that were written about 20 years ago under HIPAA. Right. So the HIPAA guidelines say your information has to be carefully transferred between doctors when it has the, your name on it, but if you remove the name, the address, the social security number, and a few other pieces of information, that's no longer data about you. You no longer have a say as to what happens to that data, and you no longer even have the knowledge as to what happens about that. So if you ask that lab, please don't share my data, it's not your data when, when, uh, when your name's removed. So there's mm. the paradox there. Right, right. Are there any other companies that are buying this, and, and what are some of the big companies involved in this trade? So the trade is largely invisible to uh, regular patients, even within healthcare. Many doctors don't know the details, lab workers, and so on. Some of the companies would be familiar to you. IBM Watson has, um, has profiles or dossiers uh, anonymized on hundreds of millions of patients. Mm -hmm. Some of the big insurance companies have started up businesses in this realm, uh, including from Anthem and Blue Cross, Blue Shield, and other kinds of companies like that. Yeah. Um, 
And the biggest of all these data traders is a company that is less likely to be known uh, by ordinary people, and that's called IMS Health. And they recently renamed themselves to Quintiles IMS. It's a $20 billion company. It's been around since the late 1950s. So a very successful business, and they have more than half a billion patient dossiers worldwide. That means years of information about individual people kept in files, and that's at the core of their business. You know, Adam, what I was just thinking, if they, if they, um, you know, with Obamacare, one of the things that I thought was helpful in Obamacare was that you couldn't be denied health insurance because of a pre-existing condition. And I've been reading, um, and I don't know if it's true, that one of the things that would happen if they do... Um, get rid of Obamacare, would that that would be reinstated, is that they could deny you uh, health insurance uh, due to a pre-existing condition. And my worry is, from what you're telling me, is if they could de-anonymize this information, um, then, well, I guess they could get to whatever your health insurance was anyway, is that they could find out, even if you didn't have insurance, they could probably still find out if you had a pre-existing condition, if that information was de-anonymized, right? Am I off so, base or what? Basically, you're right, but I think it, it would be even simpler. So the system before Obamacare did allow denial of coverage for pre-existing uh, conditions. If you were to change that, you could return to that situation. Um, but when people applied in this earlier system that we had in the United States, you had to put down your pre-existing conditions. And if you weren't honest about that, and then you had a claim related to that, and they could prove that, they could deny you coverage. So if you had cancer of some kind, you didn't tell them, and they could later see it, then they could deny the coverage. So they may not even have to go through and figure out by re-anonymizing people. They might subsequently find information. Um, this is a little bit of a complicated topic because we don't know how folks in Washington are going to deal with right. any changes in health care. But right. um, certainly this is a kind of thing that we could face in the future. But if there is a discussion of changing health care in some way or another in the United States, I think it's a good time also to consider strengthening protections of privacy related to health data. Because as I mentioned, the, the rules that we call HIPAA on transferring data about patients they don't allow us to have any say about our anonymized information. And I think if we're having a big policy discussion on what to do with healthcare, we might consider uh, having a more open debate on what to do about this and perhaps give uh, we, the patients, a say over what happens to all of our medical data, whether or not it's anonymized. Yeah, which is leads me to this question. You know, you've written these two really wonderful books, and have you worked with anybody to introduce legislation to to um, add some meat to HIPAA? So my role is not exactly that of a um, advocate for any one particular cause. I'm, I'm really a narrative writer, and so right, what I'd like right. to do is to bring these issues to public attention and then allow people to think about them and debate them. The, the difficulty when it comes to medical data was that these companies that have our medical information and assemble these dossiers by the hundreds of millions, they're not open about what they're doing. And it's hard to have an intelligent discussion, an informed discussion, 
if people don't know what's happening. Right. So by writing the human stories of the companies and their founders and the people in this business and what impact it has on ordinary folks outside of the business, I'm hoping to encourage this discussion. Now, since my book has come out, I have talked to some officials, including in, in um, kind of legal officials in various states and, and doctors and others, and I'm happy to talk to them. But I think you want to have this open discussion so that you could allow medicine and research to advance to, to help solve diseases and make um, cures for the future, right. but at the same time, come up with better privacy protections. So I'm hoping to kind of prod that discussion through my work rather than specifically advocate an exact bill or legislation. That's, yeah, I, you just want them to, to read your book. <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly, and then and be informed. But I'm glad to, that some people uh, in, in the policy realm have reached out to me so that, you know, it's, it's interesting that people who are in healthcare often do not know all of the details of what I'm describing to you today. Right, right. So we've been talking about, the, you know, sale of anonymized data. What about, is there also... Um, you know, sale of of my when my name's in it. You know, information about me and my medical issues also. So there's a, a related kind of business. We've been talking so far about medical data miners, companies right. that sell anonymized data about you. There's a related business called data brokers, right. and these companies gather consumer profiles about you that know a lot about you. They know the value of your home and maybe where you work, what kind of things you buy. And these profiles are not meant to cause evil. They're meant to sell you things. Uh, and these profiles often contain medical information. And they're companies that sell lists about certain kind of patients. So you can buy a list of 1.7 million American men said to suffer from erectile dysfunction. Hmm. There are lists of people with name, address, phone number, email by all sorts of different categories. So if you want people with diabetes or with depression or with um, various other kinds of problems, you can buy that and market to them directly. And you can do it in a very sophisticated way. So if you want black men over the age of 50 in Southern California that suffer from a certain kind of ailment, you can buy that list and market to them directly. So that's something that many people also might find surprising. And it could be something as simple as you subscribe to a magazine, Diabetes Today magazine, and they sell the mailing list. So all of a sudden, you're a likely person there. Or maybe you filled out an online survey about health conditions. Or maybe you use a fitness tracking device. Now, fitness tracking devices can be great in inspiring you to take a certain number of steps per day or work out regularly. But some of these companies are allowed uh, by their own privacy policies to sell that data. And that's something you might not expect. So a lot of what we're talking about is really dub double-edged sword. All of this technology, or much of it, is, is really improving our lives, making things more convenient. But the darker downside is the, the sale of the data that you don't know about and often don't have control of. Right, right. I know the Federal Trade Commission has recently fined a, a fitness company for, uh, you know, sharing that information and not and making it available online. So, yeah, uh, uh, besides reading the privacy policy, which um, may not always, they may not always be compliant with their own privacy policy, but that gets back to reading the privacy policy. Well, we only have like another minute or so. What, uh, what would you like to have people who are listening, what would you like to have them do to be more protective of their information? 
I think in general it's useful for people to think about what happens to their information. So before sharing intimate details, it's good to think about you know where it might go. And that's true in your online life and information that you knowingly share. The problem with medical data, though, is you're telling the doctor, you're telling others um, because you need their help, and we need their trust. I mean, the basis of that whole system of mm-hmm. medicine is that we trust our doctor, our nurse, our, our pharmacist, our, our, our various people within the system. And if there's this trade, my fear is that um, there would be a lack of trust developing over time, sort of a suspicion as to what's happening in the system. So I think we need to have a more open public discussion as to better protecting privacy so that trust can be there as the basis. Imagine your work as a lawyer. It might be really interesting for me to hear what you tell your clients in the confidence of your office, even if it was anonymized data, but that might undermine the trust that you have with your clients. And I think the same is true with our doctors. So I think as we think about this going forward, as data becomes more sophisticated and commonplace and cheap to store, we might want to strengthen our national rules as to what exactly can be sold without uh, w- about us without our knowledge. That's a perfect way to end. Adam, you're wonderful. We just always appreciate you coming on. So we're going to tell people that your book is Our Bodies, Our Data, How Companies Make Billions Selling Our Medical Records by Adam Tanner. And just give your website, and it's time to go. Well, my website is adamtanner.news. Data Curtain is my Twitter handle. Okay. Well, we will keep in touch with you, and you stay warm out there, okay? (laughs) Thanks very much. Very nice to talk to you. Okay. Bye-bye. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM and Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning on KUCI at 8 a.m. Thanks. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide.